from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. It's so great to be here with you today. It's going to be about 45 degrees for a high today in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and the kids are on spring break. It's official, so we are tickled to death. We're not going anywhere this week. We're staying home, and we're doing things like sleeping in like trying a new breakfast cereal, watching movies, playing basketball outside, and going to our local community center to swim. So it is just the perfect thing for our crew here just to have a very restorative, low-key week. Uh, I know for myself, I'll be doing a little bit of spring cleaning here and trying to get caught up on uh, getting the kids ready for their very last quarter of school. John is going to be transferring to the same little charter school that all the other kids are at. And so I need to go buy him uniform pants and things like that. So a very low key week, but something that our family so desperately needs. And I have to say, I am just loving it. It is exciting to not have a massive amount of suitcases to pack or laundry to fall behind on. It just feels really right for us right now. So enjoying the time at home. I have a fantastic show for you today. I'm interviewing Julia Coffey, and I want to give a special shout out to her friends and family who might be listening to the show this week as a result. In 2011, Julia bought the Seeds Trust Seed Company from her mentor and seed-saving pioneer, Bill McDorman. She's passionate, eloquent, and a yoga teacher to boot, and her deep love for nature inspires her every single day, and it comes through in this interview. So if you've never given seeds much thought, your appreciation, wonder, and regard for seeds is about to change. In this episode, I like to say Julia is going to give us kind of Seed School 101, a Cliff Notes version of just seed basics. And then in our next episode, Julia will be walking us through the Seeds Trust Seed Catalog, which is extremely interesting. And I know for myself, I'll be ordering more seeds this year than I ever have before and attempting to save seeds at the end of the season. So some new things happening in my own garden this year, and hopefully some inspiration for you as you plan your 2014 garden. Just a few of the quick normal reminders before we get to the interview. Don't forget, you can review all of the information that is covered in the show today in the show notes, which are located on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you'll find the Still Growing Podcast in the top menu. And there you can also go back through and look at all of the previous episodes of the show. If you like the show, there's a number of ways that you can support Still Growing. You can like the show on our Facebook fan page. It's simply facebook.com backslash still growing with six foot mama. And then also you can leave a review for the show on iTunes, which as I explained last week involves a few steps for you. But I so appreciate anybody who can leave a review for the show because it really helps it show up in the search bar for gardening podcasts available on iTunes. Well, that's it for housekeeping. Now let's listen to my interview with the inspiring and eloquent Julia Coffey. 
Well, I'm thrilled today to have on the show Julia Coffey of Seeds Trust. She's a fascinating young woman who recently took over the Seeds Trust. She actually bought the company from her mentor, and she has a unique story that all starts with an opportunity she had a few years ago to learn about saving seeds. That experience changed her life, and I'm so pleased it did because she's become a real advocate and steward of seeds, something the world really needs more of. So welcome, Julia. Thanks, Jennifer. I'm happy to be here. Julia, you and I chatted before this interview, and we had a chance to talk about some of the really amazing experiences you've had, especially for someone in their mid-20s. Could you share with us where you grew up and then your path to the Seeds Trust? Well, I am a Colorado native, born in Denver. Um, I went to CU Boulder, um, and I didn't study anything that has to do with plants or seeds. I studied linguistics and French. Um, which that's what I ended up with. I studied a whole bunch of other things, but I graduated in four years. <laughs> Yay! Um, yeah. So, um, with my French and linguistics degrees, I moved to France and I taught English for a while. And, um, honestly, that is where all of this started. Hmm. Um, I had been really, uh, interested in making sure that my dollar went to things that I believed in. So I was a really careful eater as far as where I purchased things. Um, I went through all my phases of, you know, vegetarianism, veganism, microbiotics, all that kind of stuff. Just to experience participating in the economy in a way that was in accordance with what I believed in. And so when I was in France, I saw this really fascinating kind of clash of cultures, is I guess how I would describe it. And it was with food. And so it was this kind of clash between globalization and industrialized food and really specialized localized model. And in the same square in the town I was living in, um, you would have artisans come and farmers come and bring all kinds of local stuff. So local produce from the farms, um, handmade cheeses and stuff like that. And then right next door, you'd have a store that sold a whole bunch of really cheap items um, that tended to be um, processed and kind of of the more globalized variety, industrialized food, and that's fine. But it was just this really interesting culture. And it got me thinking. And I never thought that I'd be the type to like research on my free time. But um, I did. And I was specifically interested in what was going on in my country, in the United States, in my state. How can we make our food system better? Um, and so I found the Lions Farmette in Colorado when I got back. And that is how I met my mentor, Bill. Um, he was actually doing a seed talk. He was speaking about the diversity of seeds. And I happened to be taking a tour of this farmette, which is just a little tiny farm. They practice permaculture. They're doing all kinds of really stuff, really great stuff with sustainable agriculture. And for people don't, so, who don't know, your mentor is Bill. Bill McDormand. 
And he is a really well-renowned seedsman and has been, he devoted his life to seeds. He's still working with seeds. He's um, right now the director of Native Seed Search in Tucson. <clears throat> but, um, so I own Seeds Trust and he's the one who owned it before me. And I learned everything I know from him. So I met him on my kind of quest to find cool stuff going on. And um, I was totally hooked. The minute he told me and, you know, the rest of us who were at the lecture, um, what was going on with biodiversity and how it's deteriorating, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to help with, have a hand in, and make better. And he mentioned to me in a class that he was um, putting on seed school. And I was like, oh, cool. That's so awesome. And it's like a week-long series of workshops on everything seed. Genetics, um, the seed industry, seed businesses, all kinds of stuff, seeds. And so I was, I came up to him after class and I was like, Bill, I want to come to this. Please let me come to Seed Stress. I have no money. And he's like, oh, that's fine. We want to save the world. Come on down. Seed's cool. And um, then he sent me to the back of the room to talk to his wife, Belle. And I was like, hey, Belle, I'm going to come to Seed School. She's like, did Bill tell you that you could come for free? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, yeah, we need to talk about this. <laughs> we need to find a way for you to actually make it happen. They're such an amazing pair. Like, he has this amazing vision, and so does she. But she's also the one that really can make things happen. And is like, all right, let's talk. That's anyway, awesome. I struck up a deal with the city of Lyons, a little town. Um, if they sent me down to seed school, then I told them I would bring them back the information on how to set up a seed library, and I would set one up for them. So they were like, definitely. So they sent me down there. Um, I got my seed, a little hint of a seed education, came back to Lyons, set up the seed library, and then moved back with Bill and was with him for a while, um, being his little seed apprentice. So that's kind of my story about how I got into it. That's amazing. Now, before we delve into what you're doing now with Seeds Trust, I know from my internet research that you're a meditation and yoga teacher as well. And you started this passion about the same time you were learning about seeds, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, it was kind of an interesting journey. Um, when you talk about seeds, it's so easy to get into all these crazy metaphors. Seeds are kind of inspiring little beings, I suppose. And the way that they can plant and germinate, they're a really great metaphor for life and ideas and stuff like that. Um, and that's kind of the way I got into yoga, in that um, these little ideas kind of sprouted. And a lot of them were um, steps in me finding out who I was and kind of letting that seed grow this knee feed and um, Sedona, which is where I was. I was in Cornville, Arizona, um, which is right near Sedona, has this really wonderful um, kind of new agey community. There's lots of really great yoga. And I, I really got into it. I was sitting quietly more. I was paying attention to the connection that I have with the earth, with myself, um, and that connection and that paying attention just led to 
I don't know, like a deeper understanding of my body, of my mind, my heart, all that kind of stuff. And that's just a really nice segue into yoga and meditation. It just kind of happened naturally. I think gardening and, and that kind of thing go hand in hand anyway, don't you? I do. For many, many people, it's this really lovely way of meditating and connecting. Yes. Heidi Highland is a famous gardener in our area here in Minnesota. And she said one time in a talk, uh, because she's going to school for garden therapy, um, that the minute your hands touch soil, uh, serotonin is released in your brain. And it does all kinds of things for for therapeutic benefits for your body. So... It's a pretty mm, fascinating, yeah, pretty fascinating mm-hmm. new field, and it's kind of a marriage between gardening and what you're doing on the meditative side. Absolutely, so, that's lovely. Yeah, it is. Share. I love the. Um, I love the quotes that you've had. I mean, just in this last little bit here, I thought you had so many wonderful um, little tidbits, little things, little connections that you've made between. Um, seeds and yourself and your own personal growth. I love the the me seed notion. Did you come up with that? Yeah, just right now. I was like, oh, God, this is getting so corny. I'm just going with it. (laughs) I love it. No, I love it. It's the me seed. That's awesome. So share the Seeds Trust story because it goes back a ways. And for people who aren't familiar with it, I think it's got a worthwhile history. Yeah, definitely. Well, so it starts with Bill McDorman in Ketchum, Idaho. Um, When he finished college, he and some buddies were trying to put together a nonprofit for um, a garden, a community garden. Um, and in his efforts to find the best seeds, he actually came across kind of a startling figure. And that was, um, we discovered that he, at that time, we were on the verge of completing a system that would result in the loss of 90% of diversity in our agriculture. And he was blown away and tied down forevermore to his seed quest, I suppose. Um, I mean, he said to himself, somebody's got to do something about this. And so he did, and he figured he'd be in it, you know, for like three years. He was a young guy, and he's devoted his entire productive life to reversing that statistic. Um, So he started Seed's Trust. He started his own little seed company, kind of moved away from the community gardening. And um, in 1989, right when some of the papers were all signed and Seeds Trust sprang into being, he was invited to go on a scientific expedition um, to Siberia. And it was one of the first groups of people to go behind the Iron Curtain because this was right after it fell. And... um, he was going there to look for seeds and see what was going on in the seed world. At that point in time, we had done a lot of patenting, a lot of searching the world for seeds to patent. Um, we were in this kind of hybridizing craze. And um, behind the Iron Curtain, it was untouched. Nobody could really go back there. And so there was just this idea of there being this plentiful diversity, and it was absolutely true. Um, at that point in time, people in Siberia were given plots of land outside of the city center because they kind of had to fend for themselves. There were not really 
many choices in the grocery stores, and that wasn't something that was really thriving at that time. So people on the outskirts of town had these little plots of land, and they were gardening like crazy. They had these little huts that they put together, these little houses, these garden sheds, and then they would grow and grow and grow all kinds of these incredible varieties of all kinds of vegetables and stuff, and they were all competing with each other to have the most flavorful tomato or the most beautiful zucchini or whatever it was they were growing. And everyone had a different variety. And then at the end of the season, they'd bring all of the harvest together and they'd have a seed swap. They would share. They'd have their little contests and there would be the winner of the tastiest, whatever it was. And um, Bill was able to kind of participate and see all of this and at one of these feasts, um, his interpreter came up to him and said, So there's a man named Sasha, and he has this delicious tomato with one all the time for best tasting. It's super early. It's incredible. And he wants to give you some seeds if you want some. And I was like, oh, my gosh, absolutely. I would love these seeds. What an amazing gift. And so Sasha nodded his head turned around and he left. And Bill thought, you know, all right, cool, he's going to go get the seeds. Well, he never came back. And the next day, in the afternoon, they were all getting ready to leave. And um, Bill said to his interpreter, he was like, well, I'm really disappointed Sasha never came back. I kind of had my heart set on sharing those seeds. (laughs) And his interpreter was like, "Uh, yeah, there was a misunderstanding because he's coming back. He just lives 35 kilometers out of town. It takes him eight hours to walk there. Oh and when gosh. you said you wanted to feed, <laughs> he turned around and he walked eight hours. He started he probably rested. <laughs> yeah. And then he turned right back around and came and he's like, you should, you should see him coming down the street in a few minutes. And sure enough, there Sasha comes having walked eight hours from his home to give Bill these tomato seeds. And they are Sasha's Altai from the Altai mountain range. And that's kind of our famous seed. And that sharing of seeds, like that kind of connection is one of the reasons why Seeds Trust exists. We still have Sasha's Altai. It's one of our favorites. And it's an honor, really, to be able to share it with people and bring it back. That is a just a fantastical story. It sounds like a movie, doesn't it? It totally does. And that's how Bill's wife is. It's just like one like movie scene after another. And he's got such an amazing heart. He's got an amazing vision. And he's such a genius. He's an incredible season. So that was his kind of journey with Pete's Trust. Um, at the point in time when I got into it, it was kind of like... Ah, the perfect timing, right when I stepped into Steve's Trust and learned and began running it, and he was trusting me with running it, he and his wife, Belle, got the opportunity to go to Tucson and co-direct a nonprofit called Native Seed Search, and that deals with a lot of, first of all, the seed bank, um, and they deal with a lot of Native populations and Native seeds. And now they have um, a really great farm and all kinds of stuff at store. So they kind of breathed some fresh life back into that nonprofit. But they had to let Seed Trust go. And so he kind of, you know, bequeathed it to me. And I'm honored 
to carry on the tradition and the vision and all the activism that comes along with Peach Trust. Julia, do you mind sharing with people how old you were when you took over Seeds Trust? When I signed the papers to own Seeds Trust, I was 24. So you're 24 years old, and I would say you're a very lucky lady because you figured out at a very young age what your passion is, and you're doing it. Yeah. Which, you know, takes people, you know, forever sometimes, so. It does, and, you know, things change, and the thing about Seeds Trust is I am my own boss, and so, and it's seasonal, so I have time and space to do other things that I love. And so I'm really fulfilled in doing something I believe in and being able to do other things that kind of round me out as a person. And yeah, absolutely. I'm one lucky person. That's for sure. That's amazing. And you know, it also kind of speaks to your mentor too, that he could look at someone regardless of age and just trust that this young person is going to take my baby and do great things with it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm like I said, I'm so honored by it. And his mentorship has been one of the most important things in my life. And we had this connection that allowed us to really trust each other and, you know, be able to take the next step in both of our lives. So for me, that was stepping into Seed's Trust. And for him, it was stepping into Native Seed Search. So we just really were able to support each other in the next step. Hmm. Now, you really can't talk about seeds without using the term biodiversity, and it's coming up as a major concern, and obviously it was one of the reasons why Bill went all the way to Siberia, right? Um, Absolutely. Can you share with people what the term means and what it means for seeds and what we grow today? Because um, you're very aware of the situation, and obviously Bill is very aware of the situation, but I don't know that a lot of people understand that we have that we all need to feel a sense of urgency when it comes to our seeds. That's absolutely right. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. The um, situation with our biodiversity is one of the most important issues any of us could be talking about, thinking about, participating in, because that's our lifeline. Um, So when I say biodiversity, I'm talking about biological diversity and That references really all the organisms on Earth. Um, It includes all the species. It talks about really genetic diversity um, all over and in our ecosystems. And genetics 101 is you're only as strong as your genetic diversity. An ecosystem is only as strong as its genetic diversity. And so the scary thing at this point in time is I mentioned earlier that the statistic Bill came across is that we were in danger of losing 90% of our biodiversity in agriculture. Well, um, the Center for Biodiversity um, just said in an article for National Geographic that we've now lost 96% of diversity in agriculture. And what that looks like is, well... 75% of our calories now come from four crops worldwide. This is worldwide four crops. Wheat, rice, corn, and soy. Say that that again. Say that again. What are they? What are the four? Wheat, rice, corn, and soy are the four major crops that we get 75% of our calories from. Hmm. 
um, that's kind of scary because Mother Nature never puts all of her eggs in one basket, and we've kind of done that. Um, and we really rely on the richness, genetic richness, um, as far as plants go, in order to combat um, climate change, um, diseases, pests, all that kind of stuff. There's all kinds of things that can affect crop production. And it happens in nature, but in nature we have such an incredible diversity of of plants. And in an ecosystem, you never have one plant crop all at the same time. It's a mixture. The closer we can get to that model, the safer we are. That's the one that's going to last a long time. Those are the ones that are the most resilient to whatever comes up. And so when we monocrop an entire space, an entire globe, we have put up one after another all of these resources, these genetic resources. We pull from wild natives. We pull from heirlooms and land races these resilient and resistant genes, and we plug them into this system, this monocropping system, and we're just putting them on the line of fire one after another. It's really not that hard to bypass one genetic modification for, you know, for instance, a pest or a disease. And in nature, there's so much complexity as far as resilience goes, and we haven't quite been able to um, remodel that the way nature does. And so we're just coming, we're depleting our resources for resilience, and it's scary, and it's something that we need to recognize and participate in. 10,000 years of people taking part in what helps us survive, saving a seed, replanting it, picking the best, saving those seeds, replanting it, and we've lost all of that in pretty much a decade since industrialization, since the Green Revolution. So it's time to rejoin the ritual plant your own garden, start making your own variety, something that is, save your own seeds so the seeds respond and they begin to adapt to your specific bioregion, your backyard, and it might even be different than your neighbors, soil, all kinds of stuff. So we just need to contribute. We need to take part and we need to care. Wow, well said. You know, that really leads to a big component, something that you're passionate about that goes along with Seeds Trust, and that's the advocacy piece, right? The educational activist side of your business. And clearly, from everything you've just shared, that component is so important. So can you crystallize for us, what is the Seeds Trust platform? What, What does Seeds Trust stand for? And what's important to you at Seeds Trust as a result? Definitely. So, rejoining the ritual, save seeds. And I know that that's kind of counterproductive as far as having a successful business model when you're encouraging people not to come back. But, you know, there are some things that are more important and larger than my quarterly profit. And that is something that has really gotten in the way of everybody. I mean, a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about comes from large active business, and they're concerned about the quarterly profit. That kind of idea does not serve. And so for Seeds Trust, the most important thing you can do 
is take a personal responsibility, take a personal um, choice, save seeds, become aware, ask questions, get educated, I suppose, um, find the connection with the seed. Seeds are kind of, um, not a lot of people think about seeds. I mean, we think about our produce, we buy it already grown, we think about organic farms and stuff like that, but this seed is such an incredible start. It matters so much. You know, I mean, if I'm going to crystallize anything about seeds, just it is um, save seeds and participate in making the world better. For people who are are thinking about saving seed, um, before we get into the how-tos of doing that, um, I want to keep going along the lines of some of the miraculous things that seeds are capable of doing. And you and I talked about this a little bit last week when we kind of did our pre-interview uh, phone chat. But one of the things that um, I thought about after our first phone call was how much we take for granted that seeds just grow. You know, we get plants from seeds and and we've just kind of taken that for granted and and misappreciated or underappreciated really all the things that are going on to make that that miracle happen. Um, I think kids take it for granted these days, even though you know there's uh, seed growing activities in school. It's it's almost like um, robotic the way that we think about seeds now. We put it in the ground, we add some water, it grows, we're done. Um, but but they're very miraculous, and there are a lot of um, very interesting facts about seeds. So I was wondering if there are some things that you could share with our listeners that might surprise people, some some interesting facts about seeds that, that people have not been made familiar with. Well, one of the things that touches me most about seeds and helps me come back to how incredible they are is the fact that they are, as Bill loves to say, Living, breathing embryos. Um, the potential in a seed is almost um, unfathomable. Unfathomable. <laughs> um, I, every day, sit around hundreds of jars of seeds, and the energy in the room is almost palpable. Like, these little guys are not, I mean, they're, they're not inert, lifeless little balls. They have... They have a potential energy in them that the future generations, all their future generations count on. So that little seed will replicate hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over. That little tiny thing, you plant it, a parent comes up, and the cycle continues. Like It's just a little representation of the entire life cycle and history of that plant. Hmm. They are little time capsules um, that have a future as well. So. When I think about how sophisticated that technology is, it blows me away, especially when we think of, and Bill likes to say this too, we're all kind of surprised and impressed by a computer chip. Well, you think about the self-replicating nature of a seed. It's much more sophisticated and complicated than a, than a chip. And... To come back to that and to know that nature created that, and that's something that we foster and have a relationship with, that's one of the most impressive things to me about seeds. Um, they also have 
this incredible capacity to adapt. I mean, we're talking about the grown-out version, but it takes cues from the environment and then adapts and then passes that on to the next generation. It's just so responsive. Um, and seeds are gorgeous. I mean, lupine seeds, you should see these things. They're like these little earth-toned gems, pebble things. Um, they all have a particular scent, like carrot seeds smell so awesome. Um, let's see, radish seeds um, have a very interesting... Well, they don't smell very good. <laughs> but they all kind of have their own character and scent and texture and life force. It's just really cool to be able to touch seeds and look at them and observe them and have a relationship with them. Do they expire? I mean, do seeds, I mean, when you get the seed packets sometimes from the store, it'll have an expiration date on it. Do do they really expire? Yeah. That's such a great question. So every year that goes by, um, their viability um, just statistically does decrease. But you have to have faith in the seed. I mean, these guys were made to, you know, face the elements, to sprout when they needed to, to kind of hold off as they needed to. So, you know, it could be the case that one seed's not viable in a year, but that's not the case for all of them. you got to give them a try. For instance, one of the oldest known germinating seeds is 2,000 years old. It was It's a date palm. It was found in, I think, a shard of pottery in Israel. And they germinated it. <laughs> and sure enough, that thing sprouted. I mean, oh 2,000 years old. So the thing is, and the way I'm going to answer is, you never know. I mean, as a seed business and the seed industry will say, you know, like, if the seed's a year old, then you got to donate it and then start over. But give them a chance. Um, we don't want to be wasting any of these resources. So it really depends. <laughs> totally depends. you got to keep them in a cool, dark place. Um, to give them the best chance, but they're pretty resilient. They were designed to survive, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Sure. So for folks who are unfamiliar with the term seed library, or, you know, it's quite possible that they don't live near a seed library. There just are not that many of them. Can you share what what a seed library is and the purpose that it serves today in the handful of them that there are around the country? Absolutely. So there is a new movement. Um, it started about five years ago to develop seed libraries all over the nation and, well, worldwide as kind of a response to um, globalized industrial seed production. This was an answer. It was kind of like, let's get our communities together and start um, fostering varieties that are well-suited to us personally where we are. So a seed library is very much like what it sounds. So in a normal library, you go and you check out a book and you read it and you bring it back. Well, it's the same kind of model and a lot of seed libraries actually are located in book libraries. Um, you go in and you check out a packet of seeds. Um, you take them home, you plant them, and then you save your seeds. So you bring back a certain percentage so you can still enjoy um, the fruits of your harvest. So you bring back a certain percentage of seeds, um, recheck them in, and 
you've kind of contributed to a richer biodiversity in your particular region. And there are, typically with seed libraries, there's a really strong educational component so that people who are intimidated have resources, have support, encouragement, and, you know, access to know-how. And there are certain seeds that are easy to save. There are seeds that are a little trickier, and there are seeds that are pretty complicated. And all of that usually is presented um, in a seed library. There's usually some kind of ongoing lecture series. And at this point in time, um, there are 200 seed libraries in um, the country. And you can go to... Um, Richmond Grows. Let's see, what is it? I think you could just Google it because I'm not quite sure of the exact web address. But um, it's like the mothership of seed libraries, and they have a listing of all the cities that have seed libraries. You can see if you have one. Um, So it's a pretty good resource. You can find out if there's a seed library near you through this resource. Yes. Okay, we'll exactly. we'll Google it, we'll find it, and we'll put it on the show notes for this episode. So for folks who are interested, Perfect. or if they can't find it on their own, they know they can always come to the Still Growing Podcast and they can locate it there. Perfect, yay. Now, yes. How many customers of the Seeds Trust um, are there? And, and how has it grown through the years? What have, you, what have you noticed in terms of your customer base? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I've only been working here for, well, working here, <laughs> running this thing for like two and a half years. Okay. Um, so when Bill started out, um, it was pretty small. He, once he started getting his catalog out, things started growing, but it's been this really kind of low going and constantly growing um, clientele. And the really fascinating part about it is, especially for me at this point in time, is the mixture between people who don't have computers, um, have no access to anything like that, and people who are kind of like only doing the computer thing. So I will get mail orders from people who write out their order, um, have an old catalog, and send me a check, and it's all corresponded through mail. And then I have the other clientele that is just, you know, it's all online, it's all through email, all that kind of stuff. So... For me, it's complicated to keep both of those kinds of clients happy in what I have to offer. Um, I mean, I've got a client base of thousands and thousands of people. Um, Some of them come back year after year, some of them every few years. Um, But that's kind of a question that I am also continuing to observe because two and a half years, is not long enough for me to really appreciate what's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're still learning, right? Still learning. I'm a beginner in so many ways. <laughs> so one thing that I do love about people and my customers is how into it they are. They say thank you when they order. They write me notes. They they want to be connected, and they appreciate the effort that Seeds Trust is putting out. They appreciate the message and they want to participate. That is so awesome. And to have clients like that just gives me the energy to keep doing, you know, what I do. It's awesome. That's really good little feedback. Well, and it's a good reminder, you know, all of us need appreciation. You know, it's such a motivator. 
Um, it's the difference it between, really you know, withholding your discretionary effort and then just freely giving it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, things get tough down there. It's just me by myself running everything. And sometimes, you know, I mess up. Sometimes orders don't go out as quickly as they should. And when you get a kind word and acknowledgement for, you know, a vision that you have that people share, just like a breath of, you know, invigoration, I suppose. It helps keep me happy and motivated. Absolutely. Now, do you get customers that bring you seeds from plants in their garden or, you know, say, for example, from the kooky neighbor down the street? And and then if yeah. you're getting that, then what do you do with them? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, my kooky neighbors tend to be from different states who love to correspond via mail. And I get awesome notes and packets of seeds saying, I found this variety. Um, this is my favorite variety. Um, can they, I don't know if they're calling for a stewardship or they want to share. Maybe it will go in the catalog, but they want some kind of dialogue. And I think it's incredible. Um, yeah, so I've, I've had like a Navajo watermelon seed sent my way. All kinds of stuff. And what I want to do is grow them out. I want to see what they are. So I have some space to be able to do that. Um, save the seeds, talk to the people about it. It's just, it's kind of like um, little experiments and friends and experiments and sharing seeds. Like the seed sharing culture is really important and it's strong too. Like you can get connected into it. People are swapping seeds all the time. Um, that kind of mentality and that kind of structure is going to be increasingly important as we go forward. So I try to participate to keep it strong um, and to have a hand in it as well. So you feel a little bit of an obligation then probably, right? When someone sends you a seed, you you do have to grow it to know for sure, well, this is what it is, right? As far as confirming it is what it is, if I'm coming at it from a business perspective, yes. But if I'm coming at it from a seed perspective and just a curious person, it doesn't have to be like, um, I need to verify. It can just be somebody sent me the seed. It's a precious gift. I do feel obligated to keep it going or pay attention to it. You know, it's kind of like people are trusting you with something they care about. Um, so that's kind of the energy that I get and I want to respect it. So, yeah. We had a chance to talk briefly last week, and you were explaining the process of de- of adapting seeds to your high-altitude growing environment. And that was exciting to me because I guess I never really put much thought into how you adapt a plant to a different climate, different zone, what have you. Do you want to share that process with folks so they can appreciate the the time and attention and devotion that that takes? Yeah, so seeds are slow. Um, Slow food has its name because there is a difference between the kind of like quick-paced, immediate gratification society that we sometimes participate in and this more, well, this truer kind of version of how life unfolds. And seeds um, are both slow and incredibly quick um, as far as adapting. So we're talking about seasons, right? So we need, these seeds need time 
to be planted, to germinate, to live, to respond to the environment, and then have their seeds. Um, so if you're going to adapt um, a variety, you need some time to do it. You need it to be able to thrive in its full season. At the same time, seeds respond to the environment right away. You might see a difference in the next generation of seeds. So, you know, when we want the seed tomorrow to be adapted, we need to wait a season, but at the same time, still get this awesome response from the plant itself and the seed. So I'd say go slow. If you're wanting to adapt a variety to um, a climate that's not at all like the one you've got, it takes more time. But little by little, say you are, you know, at 5,000 feet and you are growing at 6,000 feet. All it is is little steps. So I have growers up at 8,000 feet in West Cliff, Colorado. So we start with um, already kind of short season tomatoes so that they have a chance. So we start them in a greenhouse um, and then slowly expose them to elements that they can um, respond to and adapt to. So it's not like you're going to put out, you know, all of your tomato seeds out in the cold growing outside the first time around because the success rate is probably not going to be very high. And another rule of thumb is if you are trying to adapt, then never plant your entire stock of seeds. Always keep half of whatever you have. So if you've got 50, plant 25, um, and then from that, half of 25 and then half of the half, you always kind of have the original with you in case you have crop failure. So never put your, all your eggs in one basket. Um, and then slowly let these guys adapt. And what we were talking about was that when you're planting in a high altitude and you have success, what does that look like? Because then you're then you're you're picking your best plants, right, to pull those seeds. Exactly. So it's like the long hand version of modern day hybridization. So what you're doing is you are selecting for what you want and you are tailoring this particular Variety. I mean, it's tailoring itself, but it depends on what you choose. So if you plant a few tomatoes, um, you're going to pick the one that maybe fruits the quickest, um, is the hardiest, stands the cold the best. Like, there's a lot of things you can select for, and that's where kind of the human um, touch comes in um, as far as the varieties go. But, yeah, you pick for what you want, and then you save the seeds from that ideal. And then you plant from that ideal and you are supporting those traits that get the tomato farther, if it's a tomato, say. So, yeah, it's, it's selection. It's, it's, um, yeah, you have a hand in selecting for what traits you'd like to support. And it's got to be so disappointing when you experience a crop failure or something unexpected that happens that prevents your plants from reaching maturity. What do you do to ensure that your efforts are as successful as they can be? Oh, my gosh, that's such a great question, and it's very particular to every gardener. Um, yes, it is really disappointing because you never know. We um, planted glass gem corn last season, 
And I have these incredible genius growers in Westcliff, Colorado at 8,000 feet who I would trust any seed to. They put, they go all out. Um, I mean, Penn, who is one of my growers, she dances out there in the field of corn. Like, that's how personal it gets. The more connection you have to what you're growing, like emotional connection, the better they will do. It's kind of like the whole thing is you got to talk to your plants to let them grow. The connection is important. Um, soil is important. You've got to have awesome soil. Um, that being said, if you're trying to adapt a certain variety to um, less rich soil, you know, that's something you can do. But really, attentiveness, um, maybe your own little rituals like pen dances. Um, but we had a crop failure with the glass gem corn. We're trying to adapt it to high altitude. And it was just one of those freaky years where it was really wet and cool and cloudy in the mountains. And that's not really like us here in Colorado. Um, and it was just one of those things that Mother Nature threw at us. And it was a no-go. And it was really devastating because when you put your heart and soul into something that you care about and you want to see come to fruit, ah, it's a bummer. But that's, you got to be prepared. It's going to happen. You have to have that like resilient heart to come back and do it again. Um, and then as far as technical things to make sure it doesn't happen, I mean, Penn and Cord built this greenhouse to cover up that, that glass gem. Um, you know, you can build covers, you can um, enrich your soil with natural stuff like kelp meal or um, soluble seaweed that extends the roots down into the earth so they can get a little bit more nutrition. You can do cover crops that ends up putting nitrogen back in your soil so that as you plant the next year, um, the soil is not depleted. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of things, and they're so particular to each gardener. And when you're talking about Penn, uh, your grower, can you tell us a little bit uh, more about her? Because she's she's quite the grower for you, isn't she? Yes. She is actually, she, she has grown every single variety that Seeds Trust has ever offered. She's been a Seeds Trust customer for 20 years. So way before I had any inkling of what, well, I was like six. <laughs> Julia, she's going to love hearing that you were six. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she, you got to give her full Penn, name. Yeah, she's Penn Parmenter. Okay. Penn and Cord. Cord is her husband. And he is also a growing genius. Penn and Cord Parmenter. They went to Bill's first seed school. So we're seed school graduates, um, though different years. And that's how we got in contact. Um, seed school was in Arizona. Bill was in Arizona. And when I brought the seed business back to Colorado, Penn and Cord and I started talking because now we're in the same state. They have been growers for a really long time for themselves. They are really hardcore mountain people, and they are totally in tune with the land. They know what's going on up there. And um, they're an incredible resource because, like I said, they've grown everything that Seeds Trust has ever had. And they are magic their pen is a particular tomato genius. Like, that is her specialty. Um, cord is awesome with corn and really everything in between. <laughs> and um, they're just fantastic. It's great when you can have partnerships like that to help you along, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. They also help me stay motivated and inspired because they're such 
like they're really speed people like through and through and talking to them always keeps me inspired they're like my little tribe speed people are so particular and if you're a speed person you're part of the tribe and you know (laughs) so they kind of help me not feel isolated and they're my companions in a lot of ways now growing seed is really the very beginning of gardening And most growers never see the entire life cycle of a plant because you stop it when you harvest or when you eat the fruit or when you cut something down before it bolts. But what you're doing and what all these other growers are doing is really following the entire life cycle of the plant from beginning to another beginning. And that's the way that you're hoping people attempt to grow at least part of their um, crops every year, right? As, as gardeners, you know, around the the country are listening to this and thinking about their gardens for 2014. That would really be your hope is that they're able to hold back part of their harvest or let it go to seeds so that they can save some for the following year. Yes, absolutely. And it's great because you can have your cake and eat it too. You can save seeds and you can have, you know, your harvest. So there are a lot of ways to do it, but Yes, to follow it from seed to seed is amazing. It's really, really cool. Um, For instance, you know, and it's different too. Like you harvest a tomato to eat it when it's ripe and firm and red, if it's a red tomato. Um, But it's different when you are waiting to harvest the seeds. You let it go a little bit longer because the seeds need time to really mature inside the fruit. You're not going to pick it early, and you're not even going to pick it when it's perfect for eating. You're going to let it over-ripen a little bit, and that's kind of weird. And things like dill is really cool to see go to seed. You just don't really think about how it works. It's just a, an extra little piece of understanding as far as the whole entire life cycle of the plant and the characteristics of the plant. Dill, when it bolts, is just like crazy. It looks like this kind of like mad scientist. Dill is such a, it's like a little oval, but it's kind of papery and thin. And it looks kind of crazy when it grows, too. You know, dill has a lot of like little branches, right? Well, it starts to get really tall as it bolts and kind of scraggly. And then it has these incredible seeds on the ends of them. And really, it's as simple as just kind of shaking them into a bag. (laughs) But it's such a cool thing to see how you find the seed of certain varieties. It's just, it's not only is it a good thing to do, but it's a fascinating endeavor. Now, does the size of a seed necessarily correspond to the growth habit of the plant? Or are there things like for you being around so many seeds all the time, when you look at a seed or a, or a type of seed, are you able to say, oh, it's this, it's going to be this kind of a plant based on the size, the shape, texture, color, that kind of a thing? Well, you know that if it's a huge seed, the plant needs to be able to support that. So you'll know that it probably going to be a larger plant, need a little bit more room. And um, typically when you have a large seed, it comes from a large fruit, which means it's going to need a lot more water in in order to set that fruit and let it grow. So, yeah, um, a lot of times you can kind of tell. You can also kind of tell if the seed is kind of dust-like and small, that they're probably a lot in a particular seed. So, like, wildflowers are typically really small and hard to harvest. The smaller it is, kind of the harder it is to harvest, in my opinion. So those are kind of things you can go on. Brassicas are really interesting. There's these beautiful round seeds that turn into broccoli and 
kale and cauliflower and stuff like that, they kind of have this, this, the seeds, you can see in the seeds that they're related. Whereas when you grow them out, um, it's not as obvious unless you know they're from the same family. But you can kind of tell from the way the seeds are that they're related. So that's an interesting way of classifying and kind of looking at relationships. Now, how do you stay current on your field of expertise? I mean, you've mentioned the the seed school. I'm going to answer this in two different ways because for me, it's one particular way. And I'd say for people who are interested in seed saving, it's a different way. So in order for me to stay current and inspired and always educating myself, I need dialogue. I need to talk to my customers. I need to talk to, to pen and cord. And I need to read. Like, Bill is a voracious reader, and I'm always wondering what he's reading. Like, right now, I'm reading a book called Seed Time by Scott Chasky, which is a brilliant, brilliant book um, about biodiversity. Um, it's on the history, husbandry, politics, and promise of seeds. Seed Time. Yep, by okay. Scott Chasky. I like to bookmark, like, say, favorite sources for seed news, type in, I always type in keywords, the first things I'm looking for to stay current is like, what's going on in the seed world? Like, what's going on with the farming bill? What's going on with GMOs? Like, stay in it. A lot of my Facebook friends are seed people. They're always putting up awesome articles, keeping the seed community updated with seed libraries, all kinds of seed news. So, the more you can tap into your seed community, the better. And then as far as people learning how to save seeds, there are awesome resources online. Bill McDormand wrote a seed saving booklet that we sell at Seeds Trust. You can ask your county extension agent. There's all kinds of things. If you get involved in your seed library, they tell you how to save seeds. Um, there are seed schools going on still with Bill, and it's kind of grown a little bit. So there are seed schools not only in Arizona, but all over the country. And if you have a group of people who are interested in going to seed school, you can call Bill and organize um, him and his staff to come out there and do one. Tell the story of Gem Corn. You touched on that briefly with me in our last conversation and again today. But mm-hmm. that particular corn, it's Gem Corn, G-E-M, and it's been referred to as the most beautiful corn in the world. And that particular mm-hmm. type of corn has a link to Seeds Trust. Share this story. I think it's a really brilliant story about what happened, what's the story of Jim Corn, and how did Seeds Trust get swept up into the craze for this amazing seed and plant? <laughs> yeah, okay. So it's glass gem corn. It is a variety of corn that was fostered and kind of brought into existence by this half Cherokee man named Carl Barnes. He was selecting for the most beautiful kernels. And these things are like pastel and like opalescent. They're so gorgeous. And so he had a seed apprentice named Greg Schoen. And that was one of Bill's friends. And once Carl Barnes passed away and Greg was responsible for all this seed, he wanted to share it with other seedsmen. So he shared it with Bill to ensure the seed's um, viability and its existence. So Bill now found himself a caretaker of this incredible variety of corn. And not only was it incredible because it's so gorgeous and special um, aesthetically, but this is someone's life project. And not only one person's, but this is also 
Carl Barnes's apprentice's life work. Like, this is something that people put energy and love and time into. So it, it was pretty, a pretty huge responsibility for Bill. And so he started growing it out, making sure that it we had enough seeds to eventually be able to share with people. So Seeds Tuft had glass gem corn. And when Bill moved on to Native Seed Search, I, and I bought Seeds Trust, I ended up with this glass gem corn. And Bill had placed a picture of this glass gem corn on our website, on the Seeds Trust website. He was sharing the history of glass gem so that people could be aware of what it was. And about a year ago, I believe, maybe longer, <laughs> somebody took the picture of the glass gem corn from the Seeds Trust website and posted it on their site or blog. And it went immediately viral. Totally viral. My, it was traced back to Seeds Trust. So my website <laughs> totally crashed. I mean, this crashed my server for two weeks. I was kicked off of my server because I was considered a liability. <laughs> Had to move to a new server, get everything in, restarted. And um, I got thousands of emails about wanting to buy glass gem corn. And Bill, down at Native Seed Search, was hit with the same kind of enthusiasm. And it just went, I mean, people went nuts. And it was so awesome because who would have thought that people would get so worked up and excited about seeds, about corn? Like, that is the one thing that makes me hopeful about our seed future is this level of enthusiasm for something that we're not even really going to eat. This is something that just looks good. I mean, you can eat it. It's a flint, it's a flint corn. Right? You might even be able to pop it, but you can ground it up and stuff. But people aren't doing that. They're saving it because it's pretty. And man, is that cool. And is it a, um, I mean, for people who haven't seen the picture of it, we'll make sure we put it up with the show notes, but it really, it almost, when you see it, you almost can't believe it's real. I know, that was one of the things, is like, people comment, it just got on Reddit. This is on Reddit, on one of those, you open it up, and all the people who are commenting on it are like, wait, is this real? This is not real. Like, this is photoshopped. No, it is 100% real. That photo is as authentic as you get. And, and yeah. What does it look like? When I say that, I mean, okay, so let's say you're successful growing it. Is it mm-hmm. is it a hard corn? I mean, is it just like when I think of uh, getting corn out of the field and the kernels are hard or are the kernels soft? And then how long can I hold on to it? Do I use it in decorating my front door? I mean, what do you what do you see or hear people doing with it? People are growing out to yeah for decoration. Um, that's some- I mean, like, I haven't actually heard of people being like, I decorated my front door. Yeah. Um, the the most that I've tracked it is people sharing photos of what their crop was like and just, like, reveling in the beauty of the thing that they planted and grew. It is a hard corn. It's a flint corn. So it's made to be ground down into flour. Um, I think you can pop it, actually. But... The thing is, is I haven't had contact with as many people who are willing to do that. <laughs> and then when you grow it out, it's so interesting. Um, this is from Pen and Cord because we've only tried to grow this out once and we had did have a crop failure. So I have never touched a fresh ear. I've touched all of these ears that have kind of dried out and have really, you know, become the true seed. But 
you know, our attempt up in Westcliff, Penn and Cord can attest to this, the tassels were all different colors, like the silks and stuff. There, since the corn is multicolored, so are the tassels. It's just, I mean, it's kind of subtle, but it's even the plant itself is really beautiful. And they are kind of pearly, like they have this, like, pearly swirl about them. They're kind of, they're green and blue. They're really strong. So they're really mm-hmm. gorgeous. I think the reason I, I'm so curious about it is when you see the the opalescence of some of these kernels, you think, can that, I mean, it looks like it would be soft, you know, to the touch. Yeah. Like it would, yeah. like you could yeah. pop, put a nail, a fingernail into it and it would just pop right open, but. Right. That's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I've only seen it dried. I would imagine that it's fairly firm. Hmm. Um, but when it is dried, it's like a pearl. It's hard like a pearl, really? like these little opals. Yeah. Can people get a hold of it if they want it? They can, they can get a hold of it at Seed Search. They have a wait, but we all have a waiting list because this is not a variety that is mass produced. You know, like you can't be like, oh, I'm out of cabbage. I need to call another person who sells these seeds and re-up my stock. This is, this is up to pretty much me and Bill. Um, and whoever else is taking part in propagating it so that more people can have access. But the thing is, is with corn, you want to have a really large population that you're growing because unlike other varieties, one corn kernel does not hold all the genetics of the entire variety. So you need like 200 kernels or so in order to get the full genetic variety that is available within this particular strain of corn, glass gem. So the larger the population, the stronger the genetics. So, you know, when we're handing out a packet to someone with, you know, like a half ounce of kernels, you can grow it out and propagate it like that, but it's not the full spectrum of genetics. So, you know, it's kind of a tricky thing. If you're going to attempt this, you need space and you need to be dedicated to that then. If you're going to attempt this and you're growing it out, to be true to the variety, yep. you need space, you need a lot of kernels, and you need to, yeah, like, put your heart and soul into it. Hmm. Yeah. And you need so, to be willing um, to dance among the corn like Penn did, right? <laughs> yeah, do a corn dance like That's Penn awesome. does under the moon. That's yes, awesome. and um, well, you can get onto a waiting list. If you email me and in the subject, write glass gem list, then I'll add you to the list. Okay. Um, and I'm going through that person by person as I have corn available, but we had a crop failure last year, um, so we're hoping this year it's going to be awesome. Yep. But it's um, it's going to be slow for people who want it. I mean, I know you can, people are buying it and then putting it up on eBay, like there's all kinds of crazy stuff going mm-hmm. on, but follow it because it's an interesting story, but there's not a lot. Yeah, worth waiting for, right? Yeah. Hey there, everyone. That's it for our show today. I want to thank Julia Coffey of Seeds Trust for being my guest, and she'll actually be back with us for our next episode, and she's going to give us a guided tour of the Seeds Trust seed catalog. So if you've ever wanted someone to, an expert, to sit beside you as you flip through a seed catalog, that's exactly what's going to happen next week. So if you get a chance this week, check out their catalog online and then listen to the show, listen to the next episode, and you'll have a much greater appreciation for the variety of seeds 
and the quality of seeds that is available at Seeds Trust. Once again, thank you for listening today. You can find this podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher and the Blackberry Podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on my blog at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find this episode in the top menu under the Still Growing Podcast. You can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash stillgrowingwithsixfootmama. You can also email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Well, for the extra feature at the end of the show today, I have a recording of my husband who was quizzing our oldest boy, Will, and our youngest boy, John, on the Gopher basketball team roster because, of course, we are all caught up in Golden Gopher basketball fever here. They are playing in the quarterfinals of the NIT tournament, and it's been such a fabulous, fun activity for our family. Of course, we all love watching Gopher basketball, and I actually have a little bin next to the TV in the basement where we watch the Gophers, and it's got Gopher apparel. So if you if you came downstairs and you forgot to quick throw on your Gopher sweatshirt or Gopher socks or whatever it is, we've got you covered down there, and we've got enough for extra uh, friends and family family and guests if they happen to stop by. But we love to watch Golden Gopher basketball and just so tickled that we get another week of it here and we wish them all the best. But here is this little clip of my husband and the boys. It was a spontaneous little moment and I was so happy that I had my recorder handy and I managed to capture it. So I'll share it with you now. Okay, Phil is going to quiz John and Will on the Gopher basketball team. Howdy. Okay, ready? Go. Howdy, Gophers. Maverick. I'm Amici. Charles. Bugs. Elliot. Allison. Andre. Hollins. Austin. Hollins. Joey. Jake. DeAndre. Matthew. Daquan. McNeil. Otto. Oceanish. Kendall. Shell. Malik. Smith. Maurice. Walker. Rich. Tito. Ben. Johnson. Dan. Mikhail. Kamani. Johnson. Young. Good job. Who's Young? Kamani Young. He's a coach. Oh, Kamani Young. All right. There you go, guys. And do you know their numbers? Uh, okay. How about Maverick? 13. Charles Bugs. 24. Dang it. Close. Elliot Elias. 55. Andre Hollins. 1. Austin Hollins. 20. 20. Joey King. 24. DeAndre Matthew. 4. Daquan McNeil. Number 5. Otto Osinix. 10. Kendall Shell. Number two. Malik Smith. Thirty. Mo Walker. I have no idea. You got them all right. Wow. Way to go, Will. What do you say? Go Shockers. No, Gophers. Go Badgers. Go. <laughs> Sean, you traitor. <laughs> Well, there's our little gopher fans. We're raising them right here. Reading, writing, arithmetic, and gophers. Go gophers.